For this episode, we've partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during, and after pregnancy. Get optimal nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Bunyan of the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, bringing you another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored with my two charming, magical, and uh, fairy-like, um, butterfly-ish, gorgeous <laughs> co-partners and co-podcast hosts, Dr. Abby Edlin from National Hi, Fertility Center. And Abby's like fluttering away on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Susan Hudson of Texas Fertility Center. Hello, everyone. And then we are joined by uh, Stephanie Levitch today. She is the founder and co-president of uh, Family Match Consulting, um, is also an author. So we're going to dive into really how to manage the the holiday season when working through all the crap of infertility. But we will get to, get to that in a minute because before you did all of this stuff with uh, with third-party reproduction and egg donors and surrogacy and, and all that stuff, um, you you had a kind of interesting first job that led into this. And we have had a lot of guests, but this is the first time <laughs> I have heard someone describe themselves as, oh yeah, I was a frog. Um, and so we're very glad to have you with us, but can you tell us more about being a frog? Uh, yes, I would be happy to. And um, you, you've got to, you know, get your beer money in college somehow. And <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I chose to do it by performing in a children's theater group at the Santa Barbara Zoo, where I lived at the time. And so every weekend, we would put on shows to kind of bring um, education to children about animals. And my role was that of a frog. <laughs> and so I had the best legs because as you can imagine, like there was so much hopping in every- um, <laughs> I thought about that show. part of it. <laughs> and, and the craziest part was that whenever a child would have a birthday party at the zoo and it was like sponsored by the zoo, they would get to pick a character from our list of characters to show up to their birthday party and you would be surprised how popular the frog was. Um, <laughs> awesome. So again, I mean, my quads, my they were on point at the time. And I had a Southern accent as a frog. I was kind of like a mean frog. I would like scare the kids. And somehow <laughs> that turned into me helping people build families through egg donation and surrogacy. I, I don't know. Go figure. <laughs> so I want to know more about the frog costume. Was that, uh, and that's what I want to know. Was, it, was your head covered or was your face green or... Um, there was some kind of helmet thing. I have a photo I, I can share with you uh, at a later point, but I had like little arm things and feet things and some kind of face thing. Yeah, I was that pretty cool, actually. Were you a colorful you... frog? Like, were you multicolored or were you all green? 
Mostly green with like a black outfit, um, you know, in between all of the extremities that were green. So when you would walk into these um, (laughs) parties, would it be like in a frog squatting position the whole time? Oh, yeah. Full on. Wow. (laughs) I feel like especially in places where exercise classes are all the rage. Like, I feel like you have a niche exercise class. Like, forget Orange Theory and Peloton and all the rest of it. Like, let's do the frog leg program. Yeah. Um, you heard it here, folks. Uh, this is the <laughs> Ukraine. This is, in your next life, this is what you're going to do, Stephanie. This but, idea is copyrighted. Nobody else can steal this. No. This is our idea. Done. Done. Opening everywhere. The zoo um, animals work out. Zoo animals work out. <laughs> <laughs> Are y'all ready for a question? Yeah, we're ready. Okay. I am a 30-year-old with primary amenorrhea and low estrogen due to empty cella flattened pituitary. I have a small but healthy uterus, normal breast development. I was given estrogen pills at 16, which jump-started my periods. I couldn't stay on estrogen because I have migraines with aura. I am on progesterone pills and calcium and D3 to support my bone health, but I only get one period a year on progesterone only. To make matters worse, I have a low-grade glioma diagnosis in 2020, which means I will never be able to get pregnant safely before or after chemo. I require gonadotropin injections and letrozole to stimulate egg, stimulate ovulation before egg retrieval with the goal of pregnancy through surrogacy. Is this even safe, worth it, given my medical issues? You've got a lot going on. Holy cow. A lot to yeah. unpack. So sounds like the, the base of the question is, is I think two parts. One is with her medical condition, is she safe? And the other half is, is this okay for a baby during surrogacy? Um, and of course, the only people who can really answer is it safe for you are the doctors who know all the details. Because especially with a glioma, when you're looking at that, you're you're absolutely right in that a lot of the times the treatment is radiation and or mm-hmm. chemo. And in the process of doing that, you destroy all the pituitary tissue. So you require IVF in order to supplement those gonadotropins that stimulate the eggs. Which and it sounds so, like she needed anyway. Which it sounds like she needed anyway from the, the hypopituitarism. So yeah. that's not that's not actually a loss in any way. That's just a continuation of the status quo for her. So um, that that at least is all streamlined. But um, I think a lot of it really depends on what are the circumstances of your glioma? Like, you know, what's and what's the stability of all of your blood clotting factors and your anemia as you're going through this? Um, can you get to this before you get chemo? Can you? Yeah, and that's what I was wondering. It almost started to interrupt, but it sounds like she's already gotten some chemo. And that would be my question. Like, how long ago did you get the chemo? And if it was within the year, probably your eggs are not going to be real great to do to freeze. But if it's been a while ago, she said 2020. I think um, if it's been 2020, then probably that's okay for right now. It sounds like it's stable. If if she's had this since 2020, it's been three years now. Right. Yeah. I mean, typically with all of this, whenever you're working with cancer patients, it's it's a balance. And this is where it's not just the fertility docs, it's the oncologist, mm-hmm. it's the surgeons, it's the patient evaluating what the risks are. Because there's always going to be risks with IVF. And mm-hmm. those risks are looking at what is the risk for clotting? What is the risk for stroke, um, particularly when you're more susceptible to the effects of estrogen. And you've already ruled out the greatest risk of estrogen, which is the prolonged exposure in pregnancy. 
um, because that's definitely much more risky than most of what we do in in IVF. And so that is now off the table with surrogacy, Mm -hmm. which is good. But um, but you really you got to talk with your docs there and see what's the stability like. How's the glioma doing? How is your general health doing? And then also consider if you have already had chemo, how many cycles it may take to get the embryos that you need. Um, And it sounds like Susan, did you say she had already had letrozole and gonadotropins, or that's just what she was going? I think she was planning on using injectable injectables and letrozole to stimulate for egg retrieval, essentially letrozole to keep her estrogen level low to stimulate. So it it doesn't sound like she's done it yet. Um, So I I kind of agree with you guys that a lot of this depends on what your oncologists say. I mean, I wouldn't think that for the most part, using gonadotropins and letrozole are going to do anything to stimulate a glioma to grow. Those aren't typically estrogen and progesterone receptor dominated um, cancers. Um, It's really just, are you at a state where it is safe for you to do so? And once you have clearance from your oncologist that you can move forward and your oncologist and your fertility doctors can work together to figure out what you need to be on for anticoagulation, all those things going into it. So it, it really depends on the the stability of your disease and making sure that there's no risk to you for undergoing anesthesia or anything like that. And usually the migraine with aura component, that is a, that's a relative contraindication to doing IVF. It's not an absolute contraindication. And so yes, we try and avoid it, but but that that by itself is something that's more potentially workable based on on what you were describing, especially with using the letrozole. So, um, you know, I hope that you have the best of luck in your journey and I hope that you get all of the embryos you could ever want and you have the best surrogate ever that you really like who becomes family for you and that um, that your your journey is less complicated than it has been up until this point. Absolutely. All right. So today, um, as I said, we were joined by Stephanie Levitch, who is the president and founder of uh, Family Match Consulting. And so she is also an author of a children's book that focuses on essentially celebrating all the ways that families can be made. And as we were talking about, all right, how do we, what do we want to do and how do we want to approach this? Um, Because you talk with so many people and have so much experience, we thought we might go into going into the holiday season. How do you deal with everybody around you as you're in the midst of an infertility journey, whether you're at the beginning, the middle, the end, how do you, how do you go about that? So Stephanie, we are so glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, the holiday time, I mean, it can be tough and complicated for many reasons outside of infertility, but um, (laughs) especially in the throes of that. And it's there's so much focus on family and people wanting to know about you building your own family. Um, Are you when all the questions It can be really, really difficult. And I'll share what I decided to do. So 10 years into working in the infertility world, um, I was diagnosed with unexplained infertility. Um, nothing was working. IVF finally did, which I'm so thankful for. And I've got my little eight and 10 year old miracles. But, um, you know, I got to the point where, I mean, I 
live and breathe infertility IVF in my day to day work. But I got to the point where even the questions coming towards me personally, were getting to be too much. It's like I needed to shut it off and kind of go inward and deal with it internally with my husband. Um, and even like my parents and my in laws, you know, it came from such a loving place of just wanting to know where everything was. When's this happening? When's this happening? Have you tried this? Like it, it comes from a loving place. But it, I just couldn't for a while. I needed to just deal with it myself. And so the decision that I made, and this is something I suggest to a lot of my clients when they're trying to figure out who to tell, when to tell, if to tell, is to perhaps think about um, sharing very generally about maybe what you're considering, um, what the next steps might be, but changing the timeline, if that makes sense for you. So for example, within my own IVF, um, I would maybe be having an embryo transfer for like a few weeks, you know, from that point of conversation with my parents. And when I would share it with them, I would say a few months down the line, this is when it's going to happen. And that way, regardless of the outcome, I could make the choice and take the time to kind of deal with the emotions of it within myself before mm -hmm. relaying that information. And the cool part about doing that was there wasn't like, I didn't have 10 people waiting for a phone call on the day yeah, I had my blood test, that's a, right? That's a great idea. It, it really worked for me. And, and what ended up being really cool about it is when we found out the transfer worked, they didn't know that we had even yeah. transferred. <laughs> and so um, it was like a week after we had found out the results, we had my parents and my in-laws over for dinner as we did most Friday nights. And um, the way we shared it with them was um, we had two dogs at the time and we like decked them out with like baby bibs and balloons um, and like let them out from downstairs while everyone's having dinner and everyone's looking around like, I, I don't get it. Like, wait, <laughs> you didn't even comprehend because they knew that embryo transfer was like, I don't know, a couple months, months away. <laughs> and so it it was Aww. just really fun to be able to surprise them with that um, once yeah. they realized what the heck was going on. Um, so that ended up being a good outcome. But on the flip side, if it's bad news, then you're not having to share that that same day. Yeah, um, you can take a beat to kind of process it internally. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. So what do you do when some very well-meaning relative around the table has no idea what's going on? And they're like, well, so... When are you going to have a baby? You guys have been married for a while. Have you not thought about having children yet? And, you know, knowing what you know, how, how do you answer that in a way that's kind and protects your emotions and, you know, doesn't make them feel bad either? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to approach it. I know for myself, I would approach it. And it's so funny because everyone knows what I do for work. And so you would think that there might be just a little more sensitivity surrounding it. But, yeah, you know, right. not, a little. yeah, I mean, in turn, I'll give you an example. When I was about to start IVF, one of my close friends were sitting down at sushi. She knows what I do for work and I'd been doing it for 10 years up until that point. She said, I want to ask you something. Have you tried tracking your ovulation? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. goodness. Oh. I have never thought of that. You just solved my whole life. <laughs> like they mean well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think an appropriate response is either, you know, it's you can very well just say like, you know, it's not something that I feel like talking about right now or, um, you know, it's something that is on our mind and we're thinking about and we're not sure what our timeline is yet. Just kind of keep it vague depending on Simple. how yeah. you are, you know, in terms of like what you share. One of the things that has always kind of entertained me about that 
question. And maybe this is because I'm, you know, my brain's just a little bit off in some ways. But whenever someone asks that question, particularly if it's someone you're not particularly close to, like a close <laughs> girlfriend who knows you're trying, that's one thing. But, you know, Uncle Joe and Aunt Edna, like what they are essentially asking is, so, hey, are you guys having unprotected sex yet? <laughs> yeah. and, and that's a unique question to come up with at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, and so I I have definitely had a couple patients who've turned that around on relatives that they they like and they don't want to be directly mean to, but they want to close down the conversation completely. And and it, that has been very effective for them in getting people to think, oh, oh crap. <laughs> this is what I asked her and yeah. maybe shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times, I think yeah. a lot of times people don't understand when they're, when they're making comments about things, um, how, how personal it is mm -hmm. when, when you're the recipient. Um, my, my favorite family conversation wasn't necessarily about like when we were trying to get pregnant, but I actually got lectured twice by a family member on child spacing when I was actively pregnant. And I was like, mm, number one, none of your business, <laughs> which I didn't say because I love the person dearly. But it was like, you know, I mean, it. this is kind of what we're where we are. You know, things happen at, at the time that they need to happen for each of us and, you know, that type of thing. But I think a lot of times people just they don't they don't think about how it's necessarily coming across. And, you know, at, Stephanie, as you mentioned, a lot of times it does come out of love, but it's out of a, it's out of a weird place. They, they just don't, you know, they don't understand what's coming out of their mouth does not come to our ears in exactly the same way. Yeah, not at all. Um, and I feel like this is a generalization. This is not always the case, but a lot of times like the older generation, it was more um, acceptable to have these conversations and ask these questions. So in my experience, like it was older relatives that would just like ask without thinking there was anything wrong with it. But I think the more conversations like this we have, um, the more people will realize that these are really personal questions that can actually stir up a lot of heartache for a person. And, and yeah, I think knowing what we know too, I always assume when I go somewhere and I meet somebody who's married, you know, a couple of years, I assume that they're trying and I assume that they really <laughs> want to be pregnant. Whereas people that are not in the know are kind of the opposite. They assume they're not trying and they don't want to be pregnant. So therefore they're like, hey, so when are you going to start trying to get pregnant? They don't assume. And, you know, and, and I find that again and again, you know, so many times when my husband and I first started dating, even before we got married, we would go to parties and, you know, lots of young reproductive age people were there. And it was, it, it dumbfounded my husband in, in terms of how many of his really close friends would come up to me and know what I did. And they're like, oh, hey, we've been trying for, you know, and they'd start asking me all these fertility questions, you know, and it's like, in reality, a lot of them had really been trying and, you know, they just didn't want to spread the word around to their friends, you know, so. You're right. It's funny how we kind of approach these things from a different lens of I'm the same way as you. I assume everybody's trying and having a yes. hard time. And it's funny, my um, experience, you know, working in infertility for over 20 years, being adopted myself, my mom lost her uterus when she was 13 because of just a random fluke infection. Mm. My kids were through IVF. I legitimately forget that like babies can be made the old fashioned way. Like that's okay. <laughs> I think all babies are made in a lab or, you know, they come into their families through adoption like I like sex is actually a thing that makes babies like yeah <laughs> so how do you 
how do you suggest to your patients as they're going through when you hit a time when it's just gathering after gathering after gathering and it's a wide variety of people, some that are very close to you, some that are just acquaintances. Um, How do you suggest that they prepare to protect their own peace of mind, you know, just general well-being? Like when they know, because it's it's one thing when you're going to one graduation party and then you're done. It's something else completely when you're looking at all the stuff that happens in November, all the stuff that happens in December, right around Mm -hmm. New Year's, where it's just you feel like you're getting hammered every week. Yeah, Um, I think there's a number of ways to approach it. First, it's important to kind of have like your set answers in your mind before going into these events, just anticipating the questions that, you know, may come. And so it's almost like just saying a script in your mind, you know, you just, that's not something I want to talk about, or, you know, we'll see, well, and and just leave it at that, whatever that kind of answer is that you have in your mind to give. The other thing, depending on the dynamics within the family is if it's not you, but perhaps, I don't know, a family member who's hosting or something. And again, this just depends on the family, but if, if, if it's, if you're comfortable with that person having a conversation with everyone coming in advance to say, look, um, this is a touchy, thing right now. And we're just not going to talk about it and kind of prep everyone. Sometimes that can be the best path. And then depending on the event, it's also okay to sit out an event if you're just going through, perhaps you just got bad news about an IVF cycle or a transfer yeah. and and you need to protect yourself and sit out. That's really okay too. You have to protect your feelings through this really difficult process. And so it's there's no right or wrong. It's kind of individually what going to be the most helpful to you. Um, But preparation and just knowing going in that these will likely be questions that come up, I think is important. Stephanie, at what point would you advise people to maybe share some information? Um, You know, because I do find, and I I had infertility as well and did IVF, and Mm -hmm. I found that it was really helpful sharing with some people about what yeah. I was going through. Because, you know, you also need support, when, you, particularly when you get bad news. It's always helpful to have some support there. So in what instances would you recommend that maybe it's good to share with people, you know, what you're going through? Yeah, I think every single person needs to have like an, a, a network of people, even if it's just one close friend, a spouse, a partner, a family member, even if it's just one person, but a core group of people they're close with that they feel comfortable connecting. And really the best people to connect with are people who have been through it before, yeah. Um, not the ones who are going to ask, you know, have you tried tracking your ovulation? <laughs> they know you've been tracking your ovulation. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's important to kind of um, protect yourself and and not overshare unless that's something you want to do. But I think every person needs to have somebody to plug into, even a therapist, um, a support group. Resolve has lots of support groups of people who are going through similar things that you are. Um, I can't even, you know, the the, the amount that that can help help a person is is huge. You know, I have a lot of clients who will just announce on social media that they had their child through surrogacy and the ripple effect that I see at Family Match with our phones ringing and people on the other end of the line crying, just saying, you know, so-and-so shared their journey and I realize I'm not alone. It's like the profound effect it has when mm-hmm. two people connect who have had shared or similar experiences. Yeah. It, can really change, you know, so much. So along the lines of sharing, because we you you do need to share with some people. 
I mean, yeah. and at some point, even after you achieve your pregnancy, especially <laughs> if you're doing something like through surrogacy, where it's very obvious <laughs> that there have been other powers at play, what types of, how do you find it best to broach those conversations with your close friends and family members that you haven't maybe shared with that it's like, okay, now's the time we really need to share, but how, how do I introduce this without it blowing up in my face? Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of fear in that. There's yeah. so much fear. And this is why I'm so passionate about passionate about having these conversations about family building, because the more we all tell our stories, the more it helps to kind of chip away at the stigma. And I think it's hard. It so much depends on like your family and the dynamic of the people you're close to in your life. You know, for some, it's like we're having a hard time conceiving. Surrogacy is our best pass. We've matched with the surrogate. She's pregnant and they're going to jump up and down and celebrate uh, and be so happy for you. And for others who maybe have have never known what surrogacy even is, don't really understand how it works. That's when you have to really kind of explain certain things in hopes of them understanding that this is a beautiful way to grow a family and not something to be ashamed of. And I think you have to have those honest conversations and educate some people. You know, a lot of people think surrogacy is um, all traditional surrogacy and the surrogate is genetically, um, biologically related to the baby she's carrying. And so that's a conversation that you need to have. But I think once you say all the facts, do the explaining and don't be upset if you have to explain. We can't um, expect everybody to just know all things family building, right? So you educate them. And if there's still any type of like, um, you know, feeling where they don't accept it or, you know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, approaching it in a loving way. That's when you kind of have to just separate a little bit and just know Mm -hmm. that that's not a safe place to go to, to have these conversations. And that's okay. You find your safe place. You find your community of people that you can share this with and be supported. But the reality is that some people just aren't going to be those safe people. And, And once you know that, then you know it and you, you know, act accordingly and you just don't go there. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think it's so important to just and and that's why I wrote the book, you know, from the start, a book about love and making families. Um, We want to normalize these conversations, not just to the people and adults in our life, but to our children, um, because in doing so, it it helps to remove that stigma. And and really, all family building should be celebrated. And um, we it's our job to really introduce that to a child in a very celebratory way. Yeah, I always say babies are miracles, no matter how they get here, they're all miracles. And it's so it's so true. I mean, especially I'm sure you as fertility doctors, it's like you realize what a miracle every oh, yeah. on this planet is like the stars absolutely have perfectly um, for us all to be here. I mean, it amazes me to this day that you can take a little tiny embryo that's 100 cells big and nine months later you have full-grown baby i mean it's just it's a miraculous process it really really is it really is and so i don't care how any human came onto this planet whether it's adoption surrogacy egg donation sperm donation whatever like it's a miracle and should be Mm -hmm. celebrated and i do think you have some great points about like helping spread information to help people understand that there are these different options available and that they are more, you know, normal per se. And that, that, that there's a, there's a lot of people who are having these issues. I mean, remember one out of seven couples has 
trouble conceiving. That's a lot of people. That's a crazy amount of people. And it just, it breaks my heart when people are just like, oh, like when we'll, when we as physicians go places and we're trying to spread news about, you know, fertility care and things like that, we, we definitely kind of get beat down by the comments of like, Oh, I didn't have any problems. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know yeah. anybody. And my husband you know, just people, had to walk around the bed. When people say that, <laughs> I'm like, if you don't know anybody, it's because you've never asked. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe because you haven't come across as that safe person that they can connect with. And so it's not in your um, reality because nobody's disclosing or sharing with you. How do you enlist? other other folks to help you so um ideally you know a patient and their partner is on on the same page but i always tell my patients you cannot rely solely on your partner they are they are equally all in on this as you are and they're dealing with their own stuff and a lot of times patients and partners don't necessarily fully communicate because they're each one's trying to protect the other one so Mm -hmm. How do you get other people who are trusted involved to help you or even people that, you know, you kind of trust, but don't necessarily want to give the full story? Like, how do you pull those people in to help your cause at work, at family functions, at friend functions, wherever it may be? Like, what can you say to them? How how can they help you? Because most people just want to help um, and and they don't know how. And so what are things that they can do to help help folks avoid that, get out of it, all of those things? Yeah, well, I think you know, it just depends on who you trust in your life to have these very private conversations with. Um, I don't know if you know Carol Lieber Wilkins. She's a, a dear friend and colleague, and she wrote a book. And what she talks about in the book is how there's a difference between something being secret and something being private. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I love that so much because when something is a secret, there's this negative, you know, connotation yeah. to it. And, 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 and it can almost seem as though, if it's a secret, then this thing is bad or wrong in some way, whether that's IVF or a child being conceived through adoption. Like we never want to treat those things as a secret because then it's kind of perceived as like wrong. Now, if something's private, it just means that, you know, you want to protect the information and be careful with who you share it with. And everybody has the right to privacy. And so deciding who you want to bring in to share this private information with and that you trust to keep that private, I think is important. And I I know so many people who have found really deep connections um, by reaching out to people through support groups online, Facebook groups, um, communities online of people. Um, I mean, I I know people who have been friends for years, even after finding success in this journey, meeting while they were going through it. And now their kids get together and Mm -hmm. and they have these long term friendships. So I always go back to, you know, finding somebody who has been in the throes of this process in some way who can really relate to you is important. And you brought up a good point as far as like, let's take a married couple, for example, you know, they can't be all things to each other at all times. And their process in grieving and, and, you know, um, (laughs) processing kind of what they're dealing with is also going to look different, whether it's male infertility or it's the female, right? So if it's, if it's, you know, male factor, let's say, um, he is going, he needs to talk with somebody who has been through that, that is not his spouse or partner, because her feelings surrounding this are actually very different than his. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found helpful when I was going through IVF is I had some friends and family members that I could give like, little pieces of information and I could ask for help and be like, I need you to do this. I need you to not really ask me why at this moment. And I will share 
I will share it with you. But there's there are people in your life that you can say, I need something. I can't completely tell you everything about it. I will when I'm ready. But but access those people because those people are the ones who are going to come through for you in a pinch when you're like, oh, crap, I have my egg retrieval on this day and I have something else that has to happen. But I really don't have to do it, but I need a body. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those, yeah. Are, those are important things. Um, I just want to throw this out because this is um, kind of my my holiday secret for people who are struggling with fertility. Because, I mean, I can say I do this when I go to a party and whoever's not drinking, I'm assuming, is trying to get pregnant or is pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what we do. Okay, this is what we do for a living. And so what I encourage is sparkling water in a glass with a lemon or lime and everybody will think you have like a gin and tonic and you have something in your hand so you're not like staying there. That's a great idea, Susan. I love that. It, it, it's, it's, it really works that out. Is, that is a secret. You I have that. It, you know, you're more comfortable if you're, ha- you know, you have something in your hand and you're talking and everybody else isn't like, oh, why don't you have Ooh, a drink? Geez. You know, yeah. that type of thing. I see you're not drinking tonight. Da, 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 da. Sparkling water, lemon and lime. It works well. Or there's always the, when you have, you know, a partner or something. I have seen many people water plants with wine. Um, <laughs> and you get, you get the glass of whatever and you just hold it. You don't actually drink it. You just hold it. Or you kind of swap with your partner throughout the night. And so, you know, they would normally drink two drinks over the course of the night anyway. Well, the difference is you're just holding one of them and you're just kind of gradually rotating throughout the night. And so they get their two drinks. Nobody can keep track. Yeah. Yeah. And that... You know, you keep track and nobody asks questions because that's I'm the I'm the same way. We've picked up so many people who are trying to get pregnant by just, oh, I guess that's happening now. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think Uh, that's a great idea. Oh, I just had another question and it completely fell out of my brain because of course it did, because we got talking about all the holiday stuff. Um, when when do you advise your patients to to tell people or to not tell people because some people feel very strongly about I'm using egg donation and that's not going to be accepted or I'm doing IVF and that is not accepted by my culture. How do you tell people to deal with that? Yeah, I mean again it comes back to is it a safe place or not? And I think at for other adults in a person's life, um there's no nobody has to tell anybody anything about their family building. Where I think it differs is when it comes to the child. I do believe that every human has the inherent right to know more about who they are and where they came from. And so I think that that disclosure um, or that truth needs to be told to the child. But again, I think it just depends on um, the family and it breaks my heart. You know, I'm sure you've seen it too. People whose family due to cultural differences, it's just not something they will ever accept. Um, and that's a really tough thing. Um, it's, 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 and I think how everyone approaches it differs. I mean, I've seen families break because of this, and that is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I mean, my hope is always that through education, people can come on board. And I've seen that happen. A lot of times they're, they're, you know, not accepting of this is because they just don't understand it. They've never been exposed to it. Um, but again, if they can't, then you have to decide, well, what does this look like? But I think no matter what, having these open, honest conversations with children are so important and, and celebrating how they came into this world again, versus treating it as like a dirty little secret. One thing that I would like to kind of piggyback on that is when you're talking about having somebody safe to go to, also know that somebody safe may not be somebody who's part of your core group. And that's That's right. 
that's okay. That's okay. Because sometimes your core group needs to live in their little bubble. And, right. and that's, that's okay. But for you, you do need to find somebody safe, but you need to know that sometimes you may have to go outside of that core group and that may be a little uncomfortable. But I think in the end, it will give you um, more peace in your heart. For sure. And sometimes just connecting or plugging in with somebody who is not in touch with your core group can feel safe in a lot of ways. Um, people reach out to me all the time a friend of a friend of a friend. And they're like, hey, do you know anyone who knows something about surrogacy or who has gone through IVF? I get calls all the time. And these are not people I know, but I end up plugging in with and they mm -hmm. call me and let me know what's happening on their journey. And I don't know their friends. I'm not going to call their friends and say, hey, did you hear that? You know, so-and-so is going through the process. Oh, she just had a failed cycle or whatever. Like, I don't know her people. I, I'm safe, right? And so someone completely disconnected from your core group um, can actually be really comforting. Well, and on a different but related note, sometimes it, you know, this is a tricky situation and tough to figure out. But I think a lot of the stress that I see for patients is, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to miss work. You know, how many mm. times? Five, six, seven times. And, you know, I, I just, I don't know how I'm going to get coverage. I don't know how. So I think I find that a lot of times, and you know, this is not going to work for everybody, but I, I see it a lot for teachers. If I've, I, Fortunately, I've had several teachers whose bosses or principals have gone through IVF themselves. And so once they feel comfortable disclosing that, you know, then it's like, it makes the stress level will go from here, way down here, because the boss understands and the boss is going to give them some grace and let them miss a little extra work. And, you know, I think it depends on who your boss is. And, you know, I mean, that's that doesn't work for everybody. But I think if you can let some of those people in your circle, if you trust them enough, then I think that will help decrease your stress level as you go through all these treatments and go to all these doctor visits. Yeah, I agree with that. It is very time consuming. Yeah. Are there any simple resources you have that you you tell your patients to work with of, okay, I know I'm going to have to explain this to family, friend, boss, work, whatever. I don't have the time to go through all of it and to make sure you really understand it yeah. the way that you probably need to or want to. And so go to X place to figure it out. Are there any simple resources like that that you use? Um, I think Resolve has a lot of amazing resources. And then I think um, it's really specific to what they're dealing with, right? Like, is it IVF? Is it surrogacy? I think that changes where you need to seek information. Anybody can call me. I'll be happy to <laughs> share. I always want to be a resource to people who are navigating all of the, you know, um, tricky parts of all of this. But yeah, I, I say Resolve is a great place. There's a lot of therapists um, who specialize in infertility. If if mm -hmm. anyone wants to or can plug into someone who has the language to really explain these things, I think that's really helpful. One thing I'd like to piggyback on that too is that when you're talking about counselors and psychologists and those types of things, there are people who are specifically trained mm -hmm. in fertility and especially third-party reproduction. And so even if you have somebody that you've been following for a long time for your like mental health for everything else, sometimes it is good to reach out to a specialist in this field, just like people come to see us as, you know, infertility specialists. There, there are certain things that are unique to the fertility population um, that we just want to make sure you have the right resources for. Yeah, exactly. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Stephanie. We were very glad to have you. So thank you for this discussion. Thank you so much for having me and for all the amazing work that all three of you do.
It is absolutely her pleasure. <laughs> um, to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Remember, conference is coming up October 28th, just around the corner here, New Braunfels, Texas, right between San Antonio and Austin. Um, be sure to sign up. We've got a special VIP event, all the things, and would love to see you in person and help build some of that community we've been talking about today. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensored.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on our podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment or even leave us episode ideas. So don't hold back. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and it's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by A-Life Health. Whether you're currently going through IVF or looking to create a digital record, the A-Life app can help you stay organized, informed, and empowered throughout the entire IVF journey. Download the A-Life app today, now available on the Apple App Store.